Hey, my name is Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Genesis. Glad you're here with us this morning. We're continuing in our series called Planted. Uh, for this whole year, we've been walking through the Bible, kind of reading through the Bible and teaching through it here on Sunday mornings. This fall, we've been making our way through the New Testament, and we come today to the book of 2 Timothy. Now, 2 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. This is his second letter to Timothy, hence the title, 2 Timothy. <laughs> but this letter is a little different than the first one. This letter will be the Apostle Paul's final letter. Not only to Timothy, but also the final letter of his life and ministry period. See, Paul is in prison, once again, as he was often throughout his ministry. And he's in the middle of being tried as a criminal for his ministry, because of his ministry. And the trial isn't going in his favor this time. He can sense that the end is near. One commentator says that 2 Timothy is, in essence, Paul's last will and testament. And so at the same time, Timothy is really struggling in his faith. And so with this letter, Paul tries to rebuild or rekindle Timothy's faith. It's really a message of encouragement to a follower of Christ who's struggling in his or her faith and ministry. Now, Paul covers a lot of subjects in this letter, and it is his final words in the New Testament. But today, we're just going to focus on the main purpose of the letter, which is the way Paul rebuilds Timothy's faith. I'm going to highlight a few specific words of encouragement. If you are struggling in your faith, or if you know someone who may be struggling in his or her faith, I think you're going to find this letter helpful. Uh, either way, I trust the Lord has something for each of us today. And so if you have your Bibles, you want to follow along, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, as you turn there, let me pray for us uh, before we dive into God's Word. Father, thanks for your love and your grace. Thank you for being a good and glorious Father. Thank you for giving us every spiritual blessing in Christ. Thank you for your Word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your spirit. I trust, Father, that those of us who are listening to this message this morning, that you have something you want to speak to us, some word of encouragement to us. And so, Father, I just ask, would you pour out your spirit on our church family as we listen to your word? May it be living and active. Help us to see what you want us to see in the text. Help us to hear what you want us to hear. We ultimately ask that you would glorify your name here, Jesus, this morning. Amen. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Let's dive in. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to, my, to Timothy, my dear son, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ, and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did. With a clear conscience, as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Okay, so in verse 2, Paul opens the letter uh, referring to Timothy as my dear son. The ESV translates this as my beloved son. I love that. Isn't that neat? Paul isn't Timothy's biological father, just to be clear. Paul is Timothy's spiritual father. He has cared for Timothy. He has mentored him. Uh, you could say he discipled Timothy. And you can hear it in Paul's voice. Uh, you can hear this genuine love and care for Timothy. He says things like, night and day, I constantly pray for you. Isn't that what a parent does for a child? 
I long to see you, he says. And when I do see you, I will be filled with joy. This is a joyful relationship for Paul. And then Paul brings up Timothy's faith story. He reminds Timothy that you are part of multiple generations of faith that started with your grandmother and then your mother. And he says in verse five this, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. Now, whenever you read one of Paul's letters or study one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, you want to look for the key word or phrase that he often uses early on in his letter that kind of gives you why he's writing the letter. And this is it. Paul's writing to address Timothy's faith. And more specifically, he wants to encourage and strengthen Timothy's faith. And he begins by describing Timothy's faith as sincere. Oftentimes, isn't this true, that when we're struggling in our faith, when our faith feels weak, it's because something has happened in our life that has shaken the, kind of, the very foundation of our faith. And so we may ask questions like, what do I really believe? Or do I really believe what I say I believe? We can begin to question or doubt the sincerity of our faith. We may ask ourselves, is my faith real? Uh, or do I just believe because someone else told me to believe? Is my faith strong enough to get me through what I'm going through? If you find yourself asking those kinds of questions, then you are probably like Timothy. You might be struggling in your faith. Be encouraged. It's normal. It's okay. Now, we're not exactly sure what has shaken Timothy's faith. There's a number of different opinions, but Paul's gonna to try to rebuild that foundation. And he begins by taking Timothy all the way back to the beginning of his faith story, the beginning of his testimony. And he reassures Timothy, Timothy, your faith is sincere. And maybe that's something that Jesus would want you to hear this morning. Maybe Jesus would come to you this morning and he would wanna reassure you that your belief in him, your belief in Christ it's sincere and it's genuine and it's real. Your foundation, the foundation of your, of your faith may have been shaken, but be encouraged, it's secure. Now, Paul's just getting started. He doesn't stop with just affirming Timothy's faith. He wants more for Timothy. Let's look back at verse six. He says this, for this reason, because your faith in Christ is sincere and genuine and secure, for that reason, I'm gonna remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in sharing and suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul says, Timothy, let's fan into flame the gift of God. Now, what gift is Paul referring to here? It's likely Timothy's call and his calling as a messenger and a minister of the gospel. And the word fan into flame simply means to stir up or to rekindle or to strengthen. Again, Paul doesn't want to just affirm Timothy's faith. He wants to stir it up and strengthen it. Now, uh, we have a small fire pit in our backyard at our home. And a few weeks ago, it was one of the last, and it was one of the last nice fall nights before the cold moved in. And so I decided to start one more fire for the season. And uh, I did that. But after just a few minutes, the fire died down. I mean, like, it was like two or three minutes, it got started and went down. Now, one of my kids noticed this and came over and said, uh, You know, there's no flames, Dad. It looks like your fire's out. I guess we're not gonna have a fire tonight. And then ran off. What kind of encouragement is that? And I took that as a personal challenge. My manhood's on the line. 
my reputation as a father is at stake here. So I, I got to rebuild this fire. And so I got to work. I could see there were no flames, obviously, but I could see a few small embers. And I'm smart enough to know that those embers can lead to a flame. And so I started blowing on those embers. I kid you not, I blew on those embers for like 10 minutes and then I passed out right there in the yard. I'm just kidding. I didn't, I felt like I was gonna pass out. You ever done that, right? But eventually my persistence paid off and those embers sparked into flame and the fire restarted and it ended up burning for several hours into the night. Paul looks at Timothy's faith and he sees embers. And we know this because he says to Timothy, God did not give us a spirit of timidity. He sees that Timothy is a bit timid and fearful. If you're feeling a little timid these days, maybe a, a bit fearful about taking the next step in your faith, or you feel maybe paralyzed and unsure about how to move forward in your faith, then like Timothy, your faith may kind of be like embers right now. You may be lacking confidence. It feels like you've kind of gotten knocked out of the game and you find yourself sitting on the sideline just trying to catch your breath. It's okay. Did you know that the number one word used to describe Jesus in the four gospels is the word compassion? Your heavenly father is compassionate and he is gracious. In Hebrews 4, we're told that Jesus empathizes with our weaknesses And that because of that, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence because he can help us. And the truth is, he's the only one who can truly help us. Jesus and our heavenly father, the Holy Spirit, God is our source of life and our source of strength. He's our source of power. And Paul reminds Timothy of this in verse eight. He says this, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Paul reminds Timothy, and we need to be reminded today, that the spirit of God is our source of power, our source of love and of strength. One author said, Timothy is not to do this in his own power, but he's supposed to do it through the Holy Spirit that lives in him. The Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who's gonna help you fan your faith into flames. And I wanna make sure that we read Paul's tone of voice correctly here. Paul is not taking this tone. The Spirit of God does not say, come on, Timothy, get over it. Shake it off. Buckle up, camper. That's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. Paul is a spiritual father who with loving care and with gentleness is trying to fan those embers into flame. And that's important to remember because Paul is about to raise the bar even higher to remind Timothy of the high call on his life. Look back at verse eight again. Paul says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, to be ashamed of something means you're reluctant or you're hesitant to do something. And it's usually because of the embarrassment or the humiliation that comes with it. And so you kind of draw back when you're ashamed. Now, why would Timothy draw back or be embarrassed or humiliated about Jesus or about the apostle Paul? Well, remember, Paul is in prison. And he is suffering because of his ministry and because of Jesus. And in the next chapter, Paul says, I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Now we look back at Paul in prison, suffering in chains, and we think, wow, how glorious it was for Paul to suffer for the gospel. But put yourself in Timothy's shoes. Here is Timothy looking at 
Paul, his father in the faith, he sees his suffering and his imprisonment and the negative reputation or stigma that now is associated with Paul. And just like today, the mentality would have certainly been that if you follow Jesus, everything should work out in your favor. Everything should go well in your life. And if it doesn't, then there's people who would say, and we can be tempted to believe at times that our faith has somehow failed us, that we should be ashamed in some way. But Paul does the exact opposite. He does, he says, don't be ashamed. No, come join with me in suffering for the gospel. I want you to imagine that your father goes overseas to start a new ministry in a country like Iran or Afghanistan. And he is eventually arrested and put in prison because of his ministry. But, oh, I'm sorry. They, and when he's arrested, they put his photo on the news and he looks, he looks awful. He is mistreated. He's clearly mistreated. He's in a jumpsuit. He's got handcuffs on. His name and his reputation is now defamed. What are you going to think? What are you going to think? If you're normal, you're going to wonder if he was actually supposed to go there in the first place. Like, was this really God's plan? It sure doesn't seem like God's blessing it. Now, take it a step further. Let's say your father sends you a letter and says to you, come over here and join me. Come join this ministry. Don't be ashamed of me or of this ministry. Don't be reluctant or hesitant. Don't worry about what they're saying about me on the news. Instead, do the opposite. Step forward. Come join me in suffering for the gospel. This is, in essence, what Paul is saying to Timothy. That's a high call, right? I mean, do you see how Paul starts down here with the embers of Timothy's faith? And then he raises him up to the call of God on his life. That's a bold way to encourage someone who's struggling in their faith, isn't it? I mean, at first glance, you may think, what is Paul thinking? What gives him such nerve to say such a thing to a guy who's struggling in his faith? Well, there's only one thing. There's only one reason why Paul can say this to Timothy. It's because of the gospel love of Jesus. Paul goes back to the gospel and he reminds Timothy of Jesus' love and what Jesus has accomplished for us. Listen, Paul never motivates by putting pressure on the will. That's not what he's doing to Timothy. Paul always motivated with the gospel love of Jesus and reminding Timothy of the story that he's in. Look at verse eight again. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And here's where Paul's going to say, hey, Timothy, let me remind you of the story you're living in. He, Jesus, Jesus has saved us. And Jesus has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul's going to bring Timothy back to the ultimate source of encouragement. Jesus' love for us and what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Now, I want to draw your attention to a few phrases here. First, Paul says, he saved us. He has saved us. Jesus has saved us. But what did Jesus save us from? What did Jesus save us from? Jesus saved us from God's wrath, from God's judgment and condemnation. The gospel story is the story of how God created us for a close, loving relationship with him. But we've all sinned and turned away from God. We've all gone our own way. And our sin has separated us and fractured our relationship with God, our, our source of life, our source of, of hope, our source of joy. 
And that separation has led to brokenness and death. But the good news is that Jesus has loved us too much to leave us in our sin and death. And so he left heaven and he came to earth to rescue us. He did what we failed to do here on earth. He never turned away from his father. He loved and obeyed his heavenly father all the way to the cross where he died the death that you and I deserve to die. And then the best part of the story is that three days later, Jesus didn't just die. He conquered death and he rose from the grave and he defeated death. And that brings me to the second phrase I want to make sure I highlight. And it's this, that Christ Jesus, Paul writes to Timothy, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality. Jesus destroyed death. Or Paul says it back in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God, he's given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean for us today? It means you don't have to fear death. It means that death is not the end of the story. For the Christian, death is not final, it's only temporary. See, for the Christian, we rejoice because Jesus has defeated death. And as Paul says, Jesus has brought life and immortality, eternal life to all who put their faith and trust in Christ. And this is what Paul's reminding Timothy of. Paul's saying, don't fear death, Timothy. Don't fear my death that I'm about to experience here in trial. And Timothy, don't fear your own death. And I don't think he's talking about just the physical death. I think he's also talking about the death of your reputation. Don't be ashamed. Come join me, he says to Timothy. And that's the third phrase I want to highlight is this phrase, Jesus has called us. He has saved us. Jesus has saved us. And Jesus has called us. I want you to imagine with me, you're sleeping at night and you wake up to the sound of water. Your house is flooded. You're in trouble, right? You see other neighbors are standing outside. Everyone is stranding, stranded. You need rescuing. And so you call for help. And a couple hours later, a rescue boat shows up and a team of local firemen rescue you. They take you to the firehouse where you dry off. You get a new set of clean clothes. And then the fire chief comes to you. And he says, listen, there are so many people out there who are stranded and need rescuing. We don't have enough workers. Would you be willing to join us and help us rescue others who are stranded? And he says to us, it will be difficult work. You will have to sacrifice and suffer. And the fire chief says, you'll be with me though. You're gonna be on my team. You're gonna be in my boat. And I know you don't know what you're doing, but trust me, follow my lead. I'll take care of you. Paul is telling Timothy, Jesus has rescued us and Jesus has called us to join in the rescue effort and Jesus is the one who's leading the rescue effort and we're on his rescue team. And although the work is difficult and it comes with a cost, with suffering and with sacrifice, we can trust that Jesus will take care of us, that he'll lead our team, that he will accomplish his purposes through our lives. Our job is to join him in the rescue effort, to go out into the floodwaters and to endure for the sake of of those who still need rescuing. And we do it out of gratitude. We do it out of thanksgiving. We, don't, we didn't deserve to be rescued and we aren't equipped to be part of the rescue team, but because Jesus has come and rescued us, because Jesus, our chief rescuer, has graciously invited us to join him in the rescue effort, we say, yes, yes, I'll do it. See, it's, it's, think about it like this. If Jesus can rescue you, then he can equip you and empower you. He can protect you and provide for you as he leads you to rescue others. 
let this sink in. If Jesus rescued you and he can equip you and he can empower you and then he can protect you and he can provide for you as he leads you to rescue others. This is Paul's message to Timothy. With the rest of the time we have this morning, I want to give three kind of very specific uh, words of encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy throughout the rest of his letter. And these can encourage and strengthen us in our own faith. And here's the first one. Number one, the Holy Spirit will help you guard your faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit will help you guard your faith in Jesus. I find this so encouraging. It leaves me thankful for the Holy Spirit and giving thanks for the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul says to Timothy in chapter one, verse 14. He says, Timothy, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now the word guard means to protect or keep safe. Some translations say, I love this, guard the treasure that was entrusted to you. Oh, isn't that good? Isn't that good? Think about this with me. The Holy Spirit wants to help you guard and protect the greatest treasure of your life, which is your faith in Jesus. Maybe you have a small kind of safe at home in your closet that you never really lock. And if any thief broke into his house, he would know exactly where to go get it. But that's what I do in case you wanted to break into my house. Okay, wait a minute. Go back to the manuscript. Okay, the Holy Spirit wants to help you guard. Now, so let's say you have that small safe at home. And you place, a few valuable, you place a few valuable items in that safe, right? A couple things that you really treasure that you want to protect and to guard. Paul is saying, Timothy, the Holy Spirit wants to guard and protect the good deposit or the treasure, your faith in Christ that dwells within you. The Holy Spirit will help you guard your faith. In John chapter 14, Jesus described the Holy Spirit as the advocate who comes alongside and helps us and fights for us. Now, how does the Holy Spirit practically help us guard our faith and guide us into truth? Well, it's through the word of God. This is why Paul reminds Timothy later in chapter three to rely on God's word. Here's what he writes to Timothy. Timothy, as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know that those from whom you've learned it, you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He goes on to write, all scripture, Timothy, let me remind you, is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul says, Timothy, your faith in Christ is rooted in the scriptures. It's in the Bible where we learn what true wisdom is, that salvation comes through Christ. And Timothy, all scriptures God breathed, the spirit of God and the word of God work hand in hand with one another to give us what we need. And it's through the Bible that God teaches us. It's through the scriptures that God corrects us and trains us for righteousness. It's through the Bible that the spirit of God equips us for the good work that he has prepared for us. So be encouraged. The Holy Spirit wants to not only help you guard your faith in Jesus, but he wants to use the word of God to fan those embers into flame. That's why we say over and over again, get in God's word. It is the Holy Spirit's tool to encourage you and to strengthen you. So that's the first uh, word of encouragement. Second is this, share your faith in Jesus with others. Paul goes on throughout the, second, throughout the rest of his letter and, and encourages Timothy to share his faith, faith in Jesus with others. He wants to not only fan his faith into flame, but that means putting his faith into action. 
Paul encourages Timothy to share his faith with others. Chapter two, verse one. Here's what Paul writes. You then, my son, be strong that is in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the thing you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, once you look at this passage, this passage is often used as a good example of what disciple making looks like. Here we see four generations of faith in Christ. Can you see the four, four generations? If you've studied this before, you can probably point them out. Where are the four generations of faith in Christ? Number one, you have Paul. Paul says, the things you've heard me say. The second generation is Timothy, who received the teaching and discipleship from Paul. The third generation is Timothy entrusting his faith to reliable people. Third generation is the reliable people. And the fourth generation is the, uh, the reliable people who will also teach others. Four generations of faith in Christ. Now, I can bet you can see this kind of multi-generational faith at work in your own life. Think about this. Who are the individuals who passed on their faith in Christ to you? Who shared the gospel with you? Who opened the scriptures and taught you how to follow Jesus? Who invited you to church for the very first time? Who invited you to youth group? Who pointed you to Jesus? Now, that person or persons are the first generation. You're the second generation. Who are, your, who are you passing your faith in Christ along to in the third generation? Maybe it's your children, or maybe it's a friend or a coworker. Maybe you have a non-Christian neighbor that you're praying for and you're sharing your faith in Christ with. That's third generation. And who will they share their faith with in the fourth generation? I thought about my own four generation example. I could think of uh, a couple, but specifically my dad was the first one who came to faith in Christ in our family. And he was the first one who bought me a Bible and gave me a Bible. First one to invite me to a, a Christian Bible-based church. He's uh, invited me to the Billy Graham crusade in June of 2001, one of the Graham's last crusades. My dad pointed me to Jesus. Then I eventually did come into faith in Christ, second generation, started following Jesus. A few years ago, a uh, good example, a few years ago, about five years ago, I met a guy over at the Noblesville campus, a guy named James. He was new to church. Uh, the Lord crossed our paths. We met. The very first time we met, we started sharing a conversation. I started asking him about his faith story and come to find out he'd never really put his faith and trust in Christ. And so I asked him, James, has anybody ever shared the gospel with you? He said, no. I said, no one's ever explained the gospel to you. He said, no. And I want you to know that I've asked that question. Has anyone ever explained the gospel to you? I've probably asked that question, I don't know, maybe a couple dozen times of people. And do you know that 100% of the time, the answer has always been no? Simple question. My follow-up has always been, do you mind if I share it with you? Sure. 100% of the time. I've never had anyone say no. So I spent a few minutes and I used the parable of the prodigal son and I told James that story. We opened up our Bible and I read it and described and explained to him the gospel love of Jesus using the parable of the prodigal son. And I asked him, is there anything that would keep you from returning home to your heavenly father and putting your faith and trust in Jesus today? He said, no. Would you like to do that? He said, yes. I was like, oh, hallelujah. He gave his life to Christ that day. And for the last four or five years, James has been growing in his relationship with God, and we meet periodically. We just had breakfast a few weeks ago, and now there's my dad, and there's me, and now there's James. He's the third generation, and James is always telling me about how he's sharing his faith with his two little girls and his wife, 
who just about a year ago started studying the Bible for the very first time in her life. And then this past time we met, he told me about a young man God brought into his life, a young adult who's kind of struggling, and James has committed to start meeting with him regularly, and he opens up the Bible and shares his faith with this young man, fourth generation. Now, see, here's the thing. My dad has never met James or James's daughters or this young man. See, the first generation doesn't always get to see the fourth generation, but that's okay. We are called to do our part and share our faith in Jesus with those that God brings into our lives. Now, here's the thing about sharing your faith in Jesus with people. If you share the gospel with people on a regular basis, you're going to experience some suffering. Now, in America, it's pretty low-level suffering, but it's suffering nonetheless. You'll get conflict. You'll get criticized. At the very least, you'll feel remarkably uncomfortable at times. But that's okay. Paul says to Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel. Or you could say this, embrace the suffering. Embrace the suffering that comes with sharing Jesus. Sharing your faith in Jesus will bring about some level of suffering in your life, but it's worth the reward. One author said, a clear presentation of the gospel places you in direct conflict with the whole world. It just comes with the job. And Paul makes this point to Timothy by giving him three illustrations. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Let's look at chapter two, verse three. He says this, join me with... Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. And then Paul makes this cool statement to Timothy. He says this, reflect on what I'm saying for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Well, as I reflected on it this past week and prayed through it, here's the insight that I walked away with. What, Paul, what, Paul, what is Paul trying to teach Timothy with these illustrations? Each one of them, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, all have jobs that come with suffering. It's just a part of the job. It comes with the job. And there is suffering that comes with the job of sharing Jesus with others. Paul goes on in chapter 3, verse 12 to say this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're wanting to live a godly life and share your faith in Jesus with others, there'll be some level of persecution. Again, let's keep it in context. We don't experience the level of persecution in America that people in Afghanistan and Iran and the hidden church in North Korea that's there and the hidden church all over the world in China, like those people experience real persecution. We do still suffer some persecution though. You, my wife, my wife is confident that several years ago when we were in Louisville, that she lost her job in part because she was sharing her faith with other teachers. I just reminded this, but what's interesting is one of her teachers came to faith in Christ and she baptized her. And, and so it's worth it at times. It's worth the suffering. It's worth the reward. It just comes, it comes with the job. Now, suffering isn't the goal though. All three, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer endure the suffering because they're focused on the end goal, the greater goal. The Bible Project says this, all three of these people are committed to something bigger than themselves and they're willing to sacrifice and endure for the greater goal. Now, what's the greater goal? It's the reward that they will receive when it's all over. Think about this with me. The soldier receives the reward of pleasing his commander, commanding officer. The athlete receives the victor's crown and the farmer gets the reward of the harvest, of sharing in the crop. But when do these rewards come? At the end, when it's over. 
the reward that comes at the end is what gives them the strength to endure the suffering in the middle. And they know that their suffering and their sacrifice is worth the reward. What's our reward? We get to be with Jesus, the author of life, the creator of all things in heaven and earth, our Lord, our Savior, the one who we're living for, the one we love. We get to be with him. That's the ultimate reward. We get to be with Jesus face to face for all eternity. That's how Paul ends his letter of encouragement to Timothy. It's his final words in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, Paul says. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his, for Jesus' appearing. I'll hold this up here just for a second. Paul starts Timothy here where his faith is weak like embers. And then he walks him through the story of his life and the story of the gospel. And he holds out this incredibly high call way up here. And what is that high call? He says, listen, all of the suffering, uh, Timothy, along this journey is worth it because there's going to be a day, that day, when everything is worth it. That day. That's the day we live for. The day you and I are living for. The day we lift up our eyes out of the suffering and the circumstances that cause it and we look up toward that day. And what's that day? That's the day. Listen, the story, we know the end of the story. That's the good news of the gospel message. That's the good news in the New Testament. The reason we can endure suffering, the reason Paul's encouraging Timothy to endure the suffering is because he says, remember the end of the story, Timothy. Remember the end. It's the end of your story, Timothy. It's the end of my story. It's the end of the story for all who have put their faith and trust in Christ. The good news is the end of the story is that Jesus Christ will stand before us and he's actually gonna take a crown, the crown of righteousness. And for those who with faith endured, he's gonna place that crown of righteousness on our heads. That day, Timothy, that's the day you're living for. Keep your eyes on that day. Let that encourage you. See, our hope in Christ is a future hope that one day we're going to stand before Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that moment when Jesus is going to stand before us, look us in the eye with a smile on his face? He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's literally going to place a crown on our head. And then if I know the rest of the story, when we all gather around, all of those who put our faith and trust in Christ, we're all going to eventually take all of our crowns of righteousness off and we're going to lay them at his feet. And we're going to worship him because we know he gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. Worthy of the lamb who was slain. He's the one who did all the work. We were just along for the ride. All we did was have our faith and trust in him. And he did it all. He did it all. And we're going to worship him for all eternity. Isn't that good? That's that future hope. And listen, we're going to sing a song in just a minute called Living Hope. Because our hope isn't just a future hope. It's a living hope today. It's a part of the hope we have in the future. We carry with us today. And we believe by faith that that day is coming and we hold that reward in our hands. Like the soldier, like the athlete, like the farmer, we endure because we're holding on to this living hope today for that day. That's why we take communion. 
Every so often, that's why we take communion together. See, when we take and we eat the bread and we drink the juice, we're, we're remembering. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But we remember two things. We look back and remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. But you know, we also look forward and Jesus says, when you take communion, you proclaim my death until I return. And so when we take communion in just a few minutes, it's your opportunity to say to the Lord, I believe by faith that you suffered and died on that cross and that three days later you came back to life, that you rose from the grave, that you're seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And I believe that you are with me and you'll give me everything I need through your spirit, through your word, that you'll take care of me. And I look forward to that day when I get to stand before you, Jesus. And you're gonna say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you're gonna put a crown of righteousness on my head. And as soon as you put it on my head, I'm gonna realize, oh, I don't, this was all you. You did all the work. And I'm gonna take that crown. I'm gonna lay it at your feet. I'm gonna worship you. That's what we do when we take communion. If you haven't had a chance to get those elements, you go ahead and grab them. I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna give you a minute. We're gonna give you a minute or two as the band plays some music. Talk to Jesus. Give him thanks for what he has done. Give him thanks for what he will do. And let's, after that, we're going to worship together. Let's sing about our living hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you, Jesus, the chief rescuer, came to rescue us. I'm so thankful for those three illustrations of an athlete, a soldier, a farmer. God, we, I trust you're encouraging our hearts and you're calling us to endure, to keep the faith, to fight the good fight. And as a church family, would you help us, even just in the next few minutes, would you help us lift up our hearts and our eyes and our minds to that day, that day when you, the righteous judge, will place a crown of righteousness on our heads. We thank you for the living hope we have in you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.